Beloved congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the reason why Christians love to read the Psalms is they speak of the reality of the Christian life. There is no hiding, there is no uh, making things soft and easy, it's real, it's clear, it's the reality of the struggles that we go through in this fallen world in which we live. And it's the lament that we find of the psalmist uh, that is appealing to us. We find we are in the same predicament, same situations, same problems, same difficulties. We resonate with that. We can identify with the problems that the psalmist goes through. And so we often go to the psalms and we see the lament that the psalmist brings. Now, as I told you last time, there are five basic different types of psalms. There are the royal psalms. There's the psalms of lament. There are the psalms of thanksgiving. There is the psalms of wisdom and the psalms of praise. This one speaks right here of a praise psalm of David. So David is here praising the Lord. He's praising the eternality and the universality of the kingship of God. That God rules over all things. That the Lord, the one that we worship, is the one who reigns in the kingdoms of men. And this is what David is praising. He's praising God for that. I mentioned last time, David didn't write all the Psalms. He wrote about 80 of the Psalms. There are also, Moses wrote a Psalm. There are Heman, the Ezraite, Ethan, the Ezraite. They wrote Psalms, Psalms of Asaph. Uh, We find the, uh, the sons of Korah. We also find a few of the Psalms that didn't have names to it, attributing to a human author. But it doesn't matter because you have the proximate and the ultimate. The proximate is the human writer. The human writer going through a particular situation, a struggle in his life. But ultimately it has reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's prophetic in that way. David speaks about troubles that he is incurring, that he is going through. Which are also prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus speaks about the Psalms in Luke 24, speaking about Him. But David gives a psalm of praise here, and it's a praise of God's glory, of how glorious the Lord truly is. Have you reflected upon that fact of how glorious our God is? This is written, this Psalm 145, in an acrostic way. So 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet... It uses only 21. There's a leaving out of the Hebrew word noon. I don't know why it was left out, but it was. So he uses 21 of the, the Hebrew alphabet. And what that means is that each verse begins with the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet, and so forth, uh, through the, the 21 of the 22. It was for memorization. Psalm 119 is written in that same way. So it's an acrostic was written so that you would easily memorize the particular psalms. And that's what we find here. Memorizing a psalm that speaks to how glorious our God truly is. Now, this is a question for the church of Jesus Christ today. Do we recognize how glorious our God is? Because the only way that we can recognize how glorious our God is, is by seeing that glory revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. 
God reveals His glory in Scripture. He also reveals His glory in the created realm, but the created realm is to be interpreted by the special revelation of God's Word. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth God's handiwork and we are to understand those things from the teaching of Scripture. Now, beloved, to the degree that we're in the Word, to that degree, and cultivating God's Word in our lives, to that degree we are going to see God as glorious. We are going to worship Him as glorious. We are going to be those who are in awe and wonder and love and praise of the God who has redeemed us. And I find far too often in the life of the church that's not the case because we are absenting ourselves from the word of truth. And when we do, God is not seen as glorious as He truly is. Now, we get a foretaste of it in this life, but nevertheless, it is a taste. And when you taste and see that the Lord is gracious, that the Lord is good, you want more. When you see the glory of God, you want more. You desire more. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. I don't want to see the backward parts. I want to see it in manifestation of the fullness of your glory. That's what Moses wanted. But the Lord said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. God's glory is so magnificent He would have imploded in the presence of the Lord. And so, God is glorious. And I wonder, is that the praise and thanksgiving of the church? That God is glorious. Are we in awe at the glory of God and the wonders that He performs? And that's what David is praising God for here. He's praising that He is the universal King of creation. And that all the eyes, all the ears have seen and heard the glory of our God. Through the wonders of the created realm. Now think about this. Scripture interpreting Scripture. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the earth showing forth His handiwork. Romans 11.36 For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to God be the glory. That means everything in the created realm starts and ends with the glory of God. And all the people in this world have seen the glory of our God. Sin is that rebellion against God. What does sin do? Sin suppresses what it knows to be true. It holds back. I mean, how could you look at this created realm? Any rational, sensual creature... How could you look at the beauty and the wonder and the awe and the things that are created and the magnificence and how intricately things are woven together and think, this just happened. It just exploded. It exploded into, in, out of nothing. I mean, that's just the rebellion of man's heart causes him to hate God and to say such foolishness. <clears throat> David wants the people of God To be a people that wonder and glory in God's glorious character. Notice what he says in beginning in our text, verse 5. He says, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. This is my point, beloved, about cultivating God's word. The Hebrew term there for meditate, siach, it means to mutter. Now, Some of you might have a different translation from the New King James Version. And it might say, I will speak on the glorious things of God. Because 
the Hebrew language is, is broad. There, it can mean a lot of different things, a lot of different uh, translations. But the, the, you look at the, the Hebrew word uh, siach in other portions of Scripture. And David has reference to speaking to himself. Now, if you're speaking to yourself the wonders of God's Word, it's going to come out in speaking to others. So you're not going to just mutter it to yourself. You're going to tell others. Even as he had said with regards uh, that one generation shall praise your works to another. They were speaking it because they were cultivating it. If you're not cultivating it, you're not going to speak it. I wonder about the, the state of the church of Jesus Christ today. I wonder when you think about the disciples... As Jesus told them when they saw miracles and things, not to say anything. He told them to to, to keep it down, to keep quiet. And the purpose of that was that so he would be able to go from town to town and continue his ministry. But what was the problem? They wouldn't shut up. You couldn't keep them quiet. The Lord says, don't say anything. And they went out and began spreading it abroad. And you find that often. There is a miracle with a leper. And he goes out. Don't say it. He goes out and he tells everybody. I mean, joy and excitement and exuberance. And here we are as the church of Jesus Christ who has received the salvation in Christ, redemption, forgiveness, all the perfect satisfaction of Christ's work imputed to us. And we say nothing. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand What is going on with the church of Jesus Christ today? Why are we closed mouth? We ought to be the big mouths in this world that constantly are repeating and telling people the glory of God in Jesus Christ and to come to Him and be saved all ye ends of the earth. And we don't do anything. When's the last time you actually told somebody that you didn't know about the things of the Lord? When's the last time that you evangelized somebody? That you bore witness to some unbeliever about the salvation which Christ has procured? When's the last time that you told somebody, come to Jesus and you will have the forgiveness of all of your sins? When, beloved? And your neighbor, you asked, did you talk? I haven't said anything. Have you said? I haven't said anything either. And it just keeps multiplying. We gather together to hear the Word of God, to then spread out into the world in the sphere in which God has called us, to be like evangelists, to evangelize the Word of God, to speak about the wonders and the glory of forgiveness in Jesus. And we have become closed mouth, and it's become a bad habit in the life of the church. All I can say is it must go back to this. Because you cannot cultivate God's word in your heart and be closed mouth. It's like a burning in your soul. It causes you to speak forth and to want to tell others about the glory and the majesty of our God. So David says, I will meditate. To mutter, I will speak this to myself. And as he speaks it to himself, he began speaking it to others. And as one generation declares it to another generation, and so on and so forth, that is what we are to be as the people of God. Meditate upon God's glorious word, beloved. Take the time. I've said it to you time and time again. I continue to keep on saying, 
Take time to read God's Word. Take time to meditate on God's Word. Don't read a little bit and run off for the day. Cultivate it. Listen to it. Whatever it takes, use that time to, to cultivate God's Word in your soul. It'll do wonders in your life. It'll cause you more and more to be conformed and to hunger and to thirst for the Word. And then you are meditating on God's glorious splendor. You see, you can't meditate on God's glorious splendor apart from the Word. His glorious splendor. His magnificence. We see that in Scripture. We see it in creation. But it must start here. Scripture is going to interpret the things in the created realm. We understand the bread and the wine are signs and symbols and tokens of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We know from Scripture that this is not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Scripture defines this for us. And through the administration as we gather around, we do this. We partake of the bread and the wine and we remember the work of Christ on our behalf. This is what the Word of God teaches us with regards to supper. Why are there only two sacraments? Because that is what the Word of God teaches. That is what Jesus has instituted. Holy baptism and the Holy Supper. Those two and no more. We don't make up sacraments. Christ is the one who has instituted the sacraments. The Scripture, the Word defines it. So, we are to meditate on God's glorious splendor. The splendor of His majesty. He is regal. He is magnificent. God in His holy character. God in His, his, his attributes. God of, of who He is, is all His attributes, is wondrous. It's glorious. As a matter of fact, you find when He appears to people in the Old Testament, what do they do? They fall down before Him. And they pronounce a curse upon themselves. Why? Because God is so magnificent and so glorious in His being. Woe is me, I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. that you find in Isaiah. <clears throat> he speaks of this in Isaiah 6. And then when you look at John 12, you realize that the reference there is to Jesus. And what he saw was the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And he fell down and pronounced a curse upon himself. That's the glorious majesty of our God. He is glorious in splendor. And beloved, when we see him, We would be made like Him. We would be made like unto Him when we see Him. But when we see Him, what do you think you're going to be doing? You're going to be on your face in reverence and awe and worship. Um, The the song, I can only imagine. You know, will I dance in your presence? What will I do? You will be falling on your face in wonder and love and praise and awe of the King, the conquering King, the redeeming King, because He is majestic. And on all the wondrous works. Notice again that we find the works of the Lord. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is. And so we look at the created realm and we glory in what God has done. We glory in the sun that He has made. The moon and the stars and the trees and all the flowers and the birds and all the different bees and all the insects, the creepy crawlies. God has done a magnificent, wondrous work. So, David is saying, this is all a result of meditating, muttering the word to yourself. Well, how much muttering do you do, beloved? You might not think you talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. You talk to you more than anybody talks to you. Do you realize that? 
This is part of your conscience. You're always dialoguing with yourself. You're talking to somebody, what did you say? I was just talking to myself. We're constantly doing that. What are you muttering? What are you saying to yourself? What is it that you speak to you? What are you dialoguing with yourself? Is it the things of the Lord? No, I understand there's other things in life as well. But does this have any emphasis in your life? Does the Word of God bear any influence in your life, beloved? Is it any of your meditation? David's saying this is what he does. This was his life. On your law do I meditate day and night. That's the godly man. It was a constant refrain of bringing the Word of God up more and more in his life. Again and again, over and over, and speaking it to himself. That's what meditation is. Not just simply reading a passage, but dialoguing with the passage. Thinking through the passage. Thinking of the implications. Drawing the implication from Scripture. Not going outside of Scripture, but letting Scripture speak. Scripture interprets Scripture. When you ever have a Bible teacher that begins to draw things from outside and throw them into the Scripture like often today with regards to the book of Revelation. Run for your life. John knew nothing of Black Hawk helicopters and nuclear bombs and all the stuff that these people come up with in our day. John knew nothing of that. John knew nothing of something that was going to happen thousands of years in the future. He spoke of this to the church in Asia Minor, of things that were going to come upon them. And he was in preparation. He was preparing them for what was going to take place in their life. These things will come shortly and quickly. It's going to happen. I mean, what's the point? What's the point in telling the seven churches of Asia Minor of this impending doom that's going to come if it was going to come this two, three, four thousand years in the future? Had no reference to them at all. There's principles that we learn from that. But don't go in there, beloved, digging in and throwing in all kinds of military things. And this is what he's speaking about here and there. John wasn't envisioning any of those things. Everything that he envisions in the book of Revelation are drawn from the things that we find in the Old Testament themselves. Scripture interprets Scripture. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. Do we? Do we speak of God's awesome act of creation? I mean, you just have to wonder at all the things that are in this created realm. What God has created. The beauty, the sights, the sounds, the smells. They are magnificent. Gone to different places in this country and seen that the climate, the terrain is completely different. I don't know if it's, they still have the, the, the Google Earth You'd be able to get on uh, in California and, and drive that Google Earth and just see the terrain as you're going from state to state, looking at all the different things and the variation and the stratospheres of colors. Utah is, is just magnificent with colors and rocks and stratus that are, it's amazing. The different clouds that we see in the sky. Do you not marvel at those things? The wondrous acts of God who has created all these things. I mean, all the different types of insects and things. I mean, you hear these uh, 
the cicadas and the noise that they make. Nothing ever makes a noise like that. We all know what a cardinal sounds like, don't we? And a cardinal does not sound like a blue jay that does not sound like a robin or a blackbird or a hawk or an eagle. God has done all this. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't it wondrous? What if they all sang one tune? All the birds sang the same thing, and yet they don't. It's a symphony. It's a symphony that we listen to that we often ignore because we don't praise God for His glorious acts. What about the Red Sea? When the Lord took His people and drove them through the Red Sea and dried it up and drowned the Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. What about the wondrous act of God redeeming His people and using the secondary means and the ten plagues and to bring them out as Pharaoh hardened his heart. But the Lord was going to serve all of His purposes. And God redeemed His people. And then He led them around in the wilderness for 40 years. And their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. God provided for some 2-3 million people in the wilderness. He led them by a torch and a pillory cloud. The Lord in His wonders, He sends forth His Son to fulfill all that we have broken. Every jot and every tittle of the law. There is no sin in Him. There is no vileness to Him at all. He is the spotless Lamb who gives His life to redeem His people. What a wonder that God has done. Let the church of the Lord say so. Let those who glory in His salvation say so. Let us be those that repeat these glorious things of God's Word. We don't do it enough. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is me and you dialoguing back and forth the things of God. Not talking about the football game. Not talking about how the Husters are going to be this year. Who cares about that anyway? It's not dialoguing about those things. It's talking about the things of Christ. Some of you are misunderstood. Because you think fellowship is that just two Christians get together instead of talking about a fishing trip. Although that might not be unimportant. That may be fun. It may be exciting. It may be something that you desire and delight in. That's not fellowship. Fellowship, this koinonia, is specifically our dialogue and conversation with the things of Christ. And the church doesn't do that. Certainly doesn't do it enough. We talk and we, most of the time, are on the trivial, on the surfacey level things. We need to get deeper. We need to really begin to stir one another up to love and good works. We need to speak to one another with the glorious things of God. This is what David is saying here. We shall speak, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts. And they are awesome. What God has done is awesome. And I will declare your greatness. So I said last week, God is awesome. That word alone is reserved for God. You know, we talk about it, you kids, you, you, you go to a theme park and you get on a certain ride. How was it? Oh, that was awesome. No, no, that's not awesome. That doesn't even compare with the glory of God. It doesn't even compare with the works. It may be exciting. You may have enjoyed the ride, but it's not awesome. God is awesome. It's like there is no words that you can even communicate His splendor and His glory. 
You just have to sing out the honor of His name. And that's what it does. You ever notice when the Apostle Paul begins to speak about deep theology? When he comes up, he's singing doxology. He goes down, oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He should teach Him? Or who has first given to Him that He should recompense to them again? But of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. You see the glory. He comes up with doxology. The more that we are under water, as it were, the more we come up with that gasping for breath, that just singing out God's praise. The deeper the theology, the deeper the doxology, the higher the praise that we are to God. Maybe, beloved, just maybe, that may be the problem with the life of the church today. That the theology is so shallow in the life of the church that there is no high doxology in the praise of God. And that's a sad thing. It's not what you see here with the psalmist. He declares that God is great. And he shall utter the memory of your great goodness. So there is a recalling. So I spoke last Sunday about the, the, uh, the Feast of Booths. Where there used to be an open roof. And what the Israelites would do was they would spend the night in those booths. Where they could look up and see the wonder of the stars. And what was that? That wasn't just to say, well, look at the constellation there and look at this over here and look at that star over there. It was to remember the promises of God. It was what God gave to Abraham. And through the wonder and the beauty of the created realm, God has given promises to His people. And they recounted them. This is what they have done over. And this, beloved, is our covenantal duty with our children. It's to speak of the things of God. It's to bring up church history. It's to go through the Old Testament. The difficult passages. And to speak to our children about creation. About redemption. About the future and the glory of the coming kingdom. And what God has done for His people. We are to be a people that utters the memory. The memory has to do with remembrance. We remember certain things. That's your memory. Some of you, you have a good memory. That's because you've remembered something. You've brought something back. And this is what we are to do with regards the Word of God. <clears throat> we are to utter the memory of your great goodness. God is good to Israel. Remember how Asaph starts that out? Psalm 73. God is good to Israel. Then he begins lamenting. I can't believe that he has given so much to the ungodly and I have nothing. God is good. God is good all the time. God is essentially good. It's his very nature. God is good. He cannot do evil. God does good. He gives good things to the reprobate and yet because they are reprobate, they do not have a heart of faith. They do not give God thanks and they're heaping up wrath for the day of wrath. God's goodness is all around us. God's blessing is upon His people. But beloved, God is good all the time. You get from point A to point B, God is good. You get from point A halfway and you get killed, God is still good. God is always good. We need to remember that. So we utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness.
Our God is holy. God is thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. And the earth is full of His glory. Our God is holy altogether. It really encompasses all of His attributes. God is holy. He's righteous. See, all of His acts are right. They are good. They are holy. They are just. When an unbeliever is punished, that's the justice of God. That's good. We know that in our, in just simply in our sphere as human beings. When the wicked go unpunished, what do we say? That's not good. That's not right. That's not just. And that's the duty. That's the responsibility of the governing authorities. To do righteousness. To do justice. To mete out punishment for evildoers. And when it's not done, that's when the righteous groan. And that's why we're groaning now. We see it all around us. The unrighteousness of man everywhere and all. But God is not like this. God is righteous. And God is gracious. <laughs> you, you reflect upon your life. How many commandments have you broken? All of them. <clears throat> How many commandments have you broken in thought? All of them. How many in word? All of them. How many indeed? Lots of them. And God saves. That's the grace of God. He's giving something to us that we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be reconciled to Him. We don't deserve to be brought in from the wilderness into the household of faith and under the blessings of God. We don't deserve to be able to sit and dine with our Lord and feast on the banquet that He provides. You know where you see a foretaste of that? With Joseph and his brothers, they did not deserve all of the wondrous bounty that Joseph had provided for them and sat them down to be able to eat all the wondrous bounty at the table. God brings us in from the wilderness, beloved. That's His grace. He washes us. He cleanses us. He forgives us. He calls us His dear children. You are my child. He promises us, whatever I send upon you in this veil of tears, I will turn to your good. I'm able because I'm Almighty God. I'm willing because I'm your loving, faithful, heavenly Father. Our God is gracious to His people. And that grace to His people is not only a redemptive grace, it's a sanctifying grace. God daily is sanctifying His people. Where the outward body is falling to the earth, the inward soul, the inward man is being renewed day by day. My mind is changing. And yours is as well. You are thinking God's thoughts after Him more and more. You're cultivating them. You're growing in your love and your compassion and your desire to fellow man because of your relationship with the Lord. The vertical, then the horizontal. Our relationship with the Lord then spreads forth and spills over to a, a humanity that is unworthy and undeserving. And so were we when God extended His grace to us. We were enemies of the cross of Christ. And He redeemed us. God is gracious. If you are one of the redeemed this morning, <clears throat> you've tasted of the graciousness of God. You've tasted, beloved, His redemption. You've tasted that the blood of Christ has redeemed you from all of your sin and misery. 
That's God's wondrous grace. And God is full of compassion to his people. Let me ask you this. As those who are in Christ Jesus, and where the inward man is being renewed day by day, that means conformity to the image of Christ is happening perpetually, continually, consistently. That means, beloved, that our grace extended towards others who are undeserving and unworthy, and that's what it means, that's the only thing that grace can minister to, the undeserving and the unworthy, should not our graciousness to one another and to other human beings be increasing? Since we're being conformed into the image of Christ, then all of the attributes, all of the fruit of the Spirit ought to be increasing in our life. We ought to become, be becoming more gracious and more compassionate, even as our God is compassionate. Compassion is the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> the Good Samaritan, you find an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to those that are naked and exposed and left for dead. That was us. He covers us. He clothes us. He puts us on His own donkey. He leads us to the end. He pays our debt. If there's anything else that's necessary, He provides that as well. That's the compassion of our God. That's deep reaching, isn't it? It's the taking of something that is yours of value and providing for somebody else. You're compassionate in that way. You're long-suffering. You're giving. It's a covenant love is what it is. There's nothing like it. There's nothing to be compared with the covenant love of God. He's full of compassion. Because the Lord's mercies are new every morning. We are not consumed as the people of God. God is compassionate with us. Spurgeon once said, even though I change a thousand times, he's not changed once. We change all the time. We say and don't do. We make commitments and don't follow through. We have amnesia when somebody says, you promised to do that. I don't remember that. God doesn't do that. He's full of compassion to His people. And so when we fall flat on our face and we deny Him, and when we don't speak out the glory of His wonder, and when we seem to be afraid or we seem to be embarrassed to proclaim the name of the Lord, God is compassionate with us. He comes alongside of us, just like a mother with a nursing infant. And He cares and provides for us. He is slow to anger and He is great in mercy. This is the God that we worship. Why would we not declare His holy name? Muttering this to ourselves, it spills over. You've got to tell people that our God is long-suffering and gracious. Come to Him. Come to Him. He is a God who forgives. We are unworthy and undeserving of the least of His benefit. God forgives. He washes. He cleanses. He calls us by His dear name. And He creates and promises a kingdom for us because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, will we continue to be a people that are closed-mouthed? Will we continue to be a people that does not cultivate the things? That, will we be too busy? I get it. We're busy people. But are we too busy to cultivate the things of the Lord? 
Do we not have enough time in our life to open up the Scriptures and to begin meditating upon the truth of God and speaking it to our children and to our neighbors and to our friends and to our co-workers and to strangers that we come across? Are we embarrassed to do this? Are we too busy? Are we indifferent about this? Because this is what meditating upon God's truth does. It makes us people that are zealous for God's glory. And that's what the church needs today. We need desperately to be infused with a holy desire to praise His holy name. To worship Him. It doesn't matter what the world thinks or says. That we would call all attention and all honor and glory to our glorious God who is splendor in majesty. This is what David said that he did. And this is what we must do as well as the redeemed of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we pray?